Welcome to the Heart of a Man podcast. We are a movement of men pursuing faith, character, personal growth, and meaningful friendships. If you'd like to learn more about us and our mission to rebuild the American family one man at a time, please visit us at heartofaman.org. We hope you enjoy this lesson from our series called Genesis, Why Is It This Way? Well, guys, a lot of you know I've told the story. I I grew up in a broken family. My biological dad abandoned my mom. When he left, I was two. My brothers, who were identical twins, were three, and my sister was four years old. Dad's gone. Mom has four kids under four. She's feeling like Hagar. She had to figure it out on her own. She had to work two jobs seven days a week for a number of years. And then she moved out of the state of Texas where we were living and moved up to Illinois so she could get a job where she could have medical insurance and she left us with our grandma. And then she found out at that same time, she grew up Catholic, always went to a Catholic church and the Catholic church told her that she could never take communion again because she had been divorced. My mom felt invisible to the world and felt like God had turned his back on her. And my mom suffered immensely and still suffers from the trauma of the failed leadership of my dad. I'm keenly attuned, and I'll tell you right away, I've got a bias against men who fail in their leadership of their families. Heart of a man in large part was birthed from my desire to rebuild American families one man at a time and to prevent as many men as possible from destroying their wives and their children. In Genesis 16, I see a crisis of leadership in Abram that leads two women to fighting to two broken families, single parenthood, and an entire nation being created that to this day hates and wants to destroy the Jews. And I recognize I have a subjective view through which I see this whole story, but I'm really hoping you guys tonight will get something out of that. So here's my summary of Genesis 16, one through six. Abraham was frustrated he didn't have a son. We saw this in chapter 15, didn't we? He was afraid he would die and all his wealth would go to his servant. His wealthy friends cared about legacy and he was right there with them. A rich guy worrying about his legacy. He was obsessed with having an heir. They believed it was an important sign at that time of success and it it just talked of personal value. Abram's self-respect was strongly connected to having an heir. Abram wanted to be seen as a man with a son. Sarah heard Abram's fear and heard him questioning God. Abram could have talked to his wife. He could have shared his fear and listened to her fears as she's hearing him. And that great man of faith could have led her in prayer and sought God's will. He could have done that, but he didn't. So what happened to her? She became afraid. She was most likely afraid he would divorce her and leave her destitute, especially knowing that God had said he would have a son and and she knew how critical it was for his self-worth to have that heir. So what did Sarai's fear do to her? It drove her to take control and to tell Abram to fornicate with Hagar. And yeah, this was a common thing in pagan families and that's how they handled things, but this isn't how men of God do it. Abram could have sat down with Sarah and asked her, why this plan? Why are you feeling this way? He could have said, we are not going to violate our marriage. He could have said, I will trust God and you need to trust him as well. We're not doing it that way. But instead, Abram's fear of his wife, his fragile faith in God, 
And maybe some strange desire to have sex with another woman convinced him that sex with Hagar was a good plan. Hagar felt worthless, unseen, and alone since she had left Egypt. Abram, as the leader of his family, ignored Hagar after he has sex with her. And isn't that what men do? Hagar's feelings of having no value drove her to use her pregnancy to behave as Abram's wife. And Sarah became afraid of Hagar, taking her place and became incredibly angry, harsh, and punitive towards Hagar. And so again, Abram failed to manage the issue between these two women. He could easily have said to Hagar and sat down with her, stop being haughty and arrogant. Don't do that, that's wrong. And he could have sat with his wife and had these two talk and said, I see that you're hurt. I understand what's going on. He could have done that. He could have brought these women together and brought resolution to the problem. He didn't. Instead, Abram was afraid of Sarah's anger. He told her to deal with the slave. He didn't want to deal with this issue. And of course, the last thing he cared about was get in the middle of two bickering women. Sarah chose to make Hagar's life a living hell. And Hagar became afraid she'd be relegated to a life of harsh treatment from Sarah, so she ran away. Once again, Abram does nothing. She runs away and he does nothing. And that's so hard to understand for me because she knows she's pregnant with the very baby that he wants. He could have chased her down and brought her back and said, let's work this out. We're going to find a way. I'm the leader of this family. We're going to make this work. He doesn't do that. So please observe this, guys. The cascading effect of fear that started with Abraham and rippled through his family. Abram, the leader of his family, chosen by God, brought fear into his home and let it rip through every relationship and then stood back passively as if he had nothing to do with what was happening. And unfortunately today, this is common with us as men. We bring our fears and our anxieties into our homes and we don't help our family work together to work through it. And this creates an incredible amount of emotional trauma for our wives and our children. So what fears, dysfunctions, and emotional problems are you allowing to hurt yourself and the people in your family? In retrospect, I can see lots of these in me. I'll give you one example. When I was a young guy just starting out in business, I had a single plant, it was old. I had a bunch of employees, old equipment. I couldn't afford new stuff. Stuff broke down every day. I'm missing orders, I can't get stuff done. I got employees that aren't listening. Every day was chaos, sales falling apart. I don't have cash, I got lawyers calling. I gotta wear all these hats. It just felt like all I did was live in chaos. And so when I got in the car to go home, the only thing I wanted when I walked in the door was not chaos, not chaos. And so when I walk in, if there were shoes in the, in the foyer, if there was a mess in the, in the family room, if there was loudness in the house, if there was fighting and bickering, it didn't take much for me to just get that cleaned up quick. And so my family knew when dad comes home, if there's chaos, there's a butt whooping coming. Right, And so my fear created anxiety and tension in my home. And my sons are very neat today, probably because of my anger in that way. I'm not proud of that. I don't think that's a good thing. That's just one of many examples I can give you where my anxiety and fear came into my home and it became a dominant force in controlling what was happening in my family. I meet with so many men, you guys. 
I can't tell you how many guys I meet with. It's just an astronomical number. The amount of time I spent being, being so good at learning how to make food ingredients, I've spent that much time trying to help and know, understand men. And I can't tell you the name of a single man who's not afraid of something. And that something is having an impact on their daily behavior. And most men, almost all men, have a very hard time identifying their fear, its root cause, and how to handle it in a healthy manner. So let me ask you, how do you think fear is controlling your heart and mind? And how is it impacting your family and friends? What fear are you wrestling with? Every guy's got them, you guys. And you're not alone if you can't even identify it. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're saying, I don't have it. I would almost bet you do, and you just don't know. So please consider this, guys. Here's a summer drill. If you're going to meet with your group over the summer, which I'm highly asking you to consider, go to your group and talk about life together. Don't just talk about sports. And don't just study the scripture every time. Many of you come here for Bible study, and you want to fix your emotional problems but you wanna do it alone. We formed your groups to help you meet some guys you can trust. And the Bible study is a safe place where we wanna learn God's word. But if you read God's word, one of the key things you're gonna learn is that God said, you have to do this in community. It's built for community. Jesus had 12 people that he spent his entire time with. James said, you have to talk to each other and confess your sins. That's how you heal. And the apostle Paul never moved about alone. He was always in community with other people. These men knew they cannot heal or grow alone. You can't do it. So for those of you who think you should handle your personal life alone, I'm just gonna straight up tell you, you're dead wrong. It's a big mistake and you need to stop doing that. We all need each other with whom to confess our sins, our failures, and our fears. We need each other. Now, if you get together this summer and help each other, I'm gonna give you some questions to use that you could take. There's 12 weeks off. You could use these questions or make up your own, but these are the kind of questions that will start to nip at the fears, and you're gonna start to see the fear that every guy carries. Listen to some of these questions. What causes you to get angry? Most anger is rooted in fear. What sinful behaviors do you keep repeating? What do you do when you feel lonely? Why are you taking antidepressants, drinking too much, or smoking weed? What is the story you hear in your mind most often? What's the narrative that plays in your mind most frequently? What causes you to be mean and unkind to people? And lastly, what makes you feel out of control? Those are the kind of questions, if you take one each time you get together and just go around the room and start to talk and hunt, you're on a mission to find what's each guy's fear and then what's causing it and how is it showing up in my life? Those three things. What's the fear? What's causing it? How's it showing up in my life? That's your goal, because if you can do that with a group of men, you will stop doing that and bringing that to your family, and you'll start to have a discussion for you guys that are married with your wives about those fears, and it will dramatically change your life. The Apostle John said, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Helping each other manage fear is an act of love. Learning to manage your fear is a huge benefit to every single relationship you have. I can't even begin to tell you how huge it is. 
So let me ask you this. How can you allow others to start helping you grow emotionally? How? Let's switch gears and look at Hagar's experience in Genesis 16. Hagar was given as a servant or a slave to Abram. You just blow right by that, don't you? Just given as a slave. She had a mom and a dad. They just gave her away. Can you imagine how you would feel if your parents gave you away? I know some men in this room who were adopted at an older age, and this, for them, is like ripping a knife through their heart when they think about their parents giving them away. The pain is so deep and so real. Hagar was given to Abram and Sarah, who never called them, they never called her by her name, never. They called her the servant of Sarah. She was never consulted about being a surrogate mom. Hagar was forced into a sexual encounter and became pregnant. She felt incredibly alone and invisible to the world. Her deep need to be seen was met when she became pregnant. She would be seen as the wife of a rich man. She would take on the status of a woman producing an heir for that wealthy man. And the men and women around her would finally see her. Scripture says it went to her head. She became arrogant. And Sarah saw her stealing her position as Abram's wife. Sarah was never going to let that happen. That's not going to happen. She was at minimum verbally and emotionally abusive to Hagar. It was so bad, Hagar ran away to escape the pain. I looked it up. She traveled over 80 miles on foot while she was pregnant, alone, in the desert, no protection, completely without hope, facing possible death on that journey from marauders or guys that would rape her or kill her. Can you imagine how badly Hagar suffered from not being seen? People who have experienced not being seen know how much this hurts. See if you can start to connect where you haven't felt seen. For example, our elderly, when you go talk to elderly folks, they feel absolutely invisible in this world. No one knows their name and no one cares what they think. Single people feel this way, especially as they watch their friends get married. And if you talk to people they're in minority cultures in America. Even in our church, they'll say, the majority culture oftentimes doesn't even see me. Like I don't even, I'm standing there and they're looking right through me. This goes on all the time, you guys. And when you look at the LGBT community, isn't that what you see too? A bunch of people just sign and say, don't you see us? Don't you see us? And yeah, they're going way overboard, but they're, you could tell they wanna be seen. They want somebody to see their pain. Let me give you a few examples from my life and maybe it'll help you connect in yours. The first time I ever felt that, it was in, in, it was in recall. I could look back, but I didn't know what it was. But when I look back, I know this is what it was. My mom pulled out of the driveway when I was five. She was pulling off to go to Chicago, leaving. I was living in my grandmother's house. I'm laying in the front yard. I'm watching the car driveway and I'm bawling, just weeping. And there's nobody there. My grandma's inside, my brothers and sisters inside, and I'm just weeping alone. And I can't possibly tell you how invisible I felt. Another time was at a men's retreat. I was in my 20s, and I worked my tail off at this retreat. It was the first retreat I'd ever done. I didn't even know what a retreat was. I grew up Catholic. I didn't know what a retreat was. And so I'm working my tail off, put a lot of effort in. I was one of the speakers, and it went well. And um, 
we got done, and me and another guy coordinated this whole thing, and one of the pastors came up afterwards and said to the other guy, great job, and stood there for five minutes telling what an incredible job he did, and then walked away. And I just stood there, and I started crying. I'm like, what happened? What was that? I mean, I literally felt invisible. And I can tell you this, this is hard. I just, uh, two years ago, I sold my company. It's a little less than two years ago. And uh, in fact, I've got the papers right in there that dissolves the company legally. I signed those today. That was hard. And uh, you know what happens when you do that? Part of your identity goes with you. And I was a CEO for 34 years. And I just, I just, I just signed a document and said, you're not that anymore. And it just went away. And so hard of a man for me is a bit of a, a battle to hang on to my identity because I don't want to feel invisible. Because you know, when you retire, people don't really look at you the same way anymore. And I just don't want to be treated that way. And so I'm feeling that right now, you guys. I don't want to become invisible. The explosion of social media makes one thing abundantly clear. People are in desperate need of being seen. And people will go to extreme measures to make that happen every single day. So you got to be asking yourself, are you in that space? Am I having that experience? Do I want to be seen? Here's some questions to identify that maybe there's a driver in you of wanting to be seen that might be having a bigger impact on your behavior than you might think. I'm not, you can get these questions. If you really want them, just call me. I'll send them to you. But just, it's just more to get you thinking right now. How much is success or achievement driving your daily motivations? How often do you talk about yourself in conversations? Are you checking likes and follows constantly throughout the day? Did your parents get divorced? Do you think about suicide? Are you spending a good deal of time playing video games? How much have you altered your physical appearance? Are you sexually active with people outside of marriage? How often do you feel alone or ignored? And lastly, how upset do you get when you haven't been recognized for helping others or doing a good job? So I hope you're feeling and thinking, how have I experienced this feeling of not being seen? I would be really surprised if not every one of you is not thinking of some time right now and the impact that that's had on your behavior. Being seen is a significant emotional need that we all have. God made us with that need so we would be drawn to him and to each other. God's primary solution to meet that need was marriage. And this is where it gets hard. And I hope you guys that are not married or have been divorced or single or whatever your case is, you're not going to hear the wrong thing here. So please, please know that I love you guys. I care about you guys. But there's a message in here and stick with it, all right? And see if you can't connect to the message. God's primary solution to be our need to be seen was marriage. He created marriage as a solution to man being alone. And unfortunately, our culture has deeply, deeply devalued marriage. And we as men put almost no value on marriage as a source of emotional support. Our young people see little value in marriage and are not getting married. 
As the leaders of our families, men, we are being not being taught. Nothing's coming to us. We are not getting any skills in communication and emotional and marital leadership from anywhere, nowhere. In the last 10 years, I've not heard a single, me personally, not a single pastor talk about healthy marriages, not even come close to talking about healthy marriages. Pastors don't want to offend or discourage anybody that's single, that's, that's divorced, that's got a, a, a marriage that's off color in some way. They're all afraid to get bombarded with criticism from that. So instead of pointing men to this incredible gift of marriage, it just doesn't get talked about anymore. Unhealthy marriages have been destroying our country for years. So when you think about the decimation of the family, and people know this, the data is unequivocally powerful. You can't, you go Google tomorrow and say, how has the breakup of the family affected the country? You won't stop reading for days. It's so well documented. But what's not talked about is that the breakup of the family comes from the destruction of the marriage. It starts when the marriage falls apart and then the family falls apart. It's the destruction of marriage that's causing America to fall apart. As Christians, we must be the one group. We must be the one group who deeply values marriage. Why? Because we recognize that from this platform, we have the greatest chance to develop our own emotional health and therefore be able to raise healthy children. It's that platform on which our emotional health depends. That's what God said. It is not good for man to be alone. So what did he make? A wife. And from that, we develop our emotional health. The two shall become one. That's the backbone of emotional health for both the man and the woman. And that is not being paid attention to by anybody. Completely ignored, walked away from, set aside and marginalized in droves. And the church is not embracing it. Jane Anderson in 2014 published a paper in the National Library of Medicine, highly liberal, shocking. Wait till you hear this abstract. You won't believe these words. Incredibly good. Nearly three decades of research evaluating the impact of family structure on the health and well-being of children demonstrates that children living with their married biological parents consistently have better physical, emotional, and academic well-being. Pediatricians and society should promote the family structure that has the best chance of producing healthy children. The best scientific literature to date suggests that, with the exception of parents forced with unresolvable marital violence, children fare better when parents work at maintaining their marriage. Consequently, society should make every effort to support healthy marriages and discourage married couples from divorcing. That's a liberal organization, government organization saying those words. You would almost think that came out of a Christian manual, wouldn't you? How much value do you place on marriage as a primary source of your emotional health and the emotional health of your wife and children? How much? That's a big deal, you guys. This one pains me deeply because marriage has been so marginalized. And it is stinking hard. It's the hardest thing we have to do as men is build a healthy marriage with our life. Incredibly hard. But it's the place God says, you got to stay there. Hagar, go back to the hard place. 
Men, go back to the hard place. Let's close by looking at how God showed up in these two stories. Hagar's sitting in a very harsh desert, halfway between Canaan and Egypt, and an angel of God comes from heaven to meet her. Side note, God does his best work when we're in deserts. Hagar, Moses, and Jesus all found God. Oh, did they? No, God found them in a desert. So maybe God has you in a desert right now. Well, what's a desert? It's a place where you're out of control. No more levers to pull, no more knobs to turn, no more calls to make, no more money. There's no money that can get you out of it. You're alone and you are out of options. That's a desert. And God said, why don't you stop trying to get out of this desert and instead start looking for me because that's when I show up. Many think that because Hagar called him God and that she saw him face to face, that that angel was in fact the pre-incarnate Jesus. His first word out of his mouth, the angel was Hagar. Does this remind you of a time Jesus is resurrected, Mary's pulling on him, talking to him, she doesn't know it's him, and he turns and says, Mary. And she looks at him and goes, oh, teacher. All that Jesus has to do is say your name when he looks you in the eyes and you know it's him. And she knew, she knew. And then he listens to her, says, tell me what's your past? Where are you from? And she tells him her pain. Does that remind you of something? Remember the woman at the well? Jesus is standing there and he's like, tell me your past. Tell me your pain. And she did. And then Jesus said, well, let me tell you about your future. And it's exactly what he does here. So how can you doubt this is not Jesus? He deeply cares about our emotions. He cares about her. He wants her to trust him. He talked to her about her pain. And then he explained what's going to happen to her life going forward. And he told her, you're going to have a son. And he's going to be a wild donkey man. And everybody said, including me, yeah, this guy's a, the other word for donkey. And so I, that was good restraint, wasn't it? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> but people always take donkey in this wild donkey in this case to mean crazy. It does not mean crazy. It means free. Don wild means free. A wild horse is free. This is resonating with her. He just said to her, your son will not be a slave like you. He will be free. And then he said, and the people that are oppressing you, he's going to go back and put the hammer on them. And he's going to do it for a long time. So you don't think that wasn't good news to her? She said, so you're telling me my son's never going to be a slave. And he's going to fight the people that hurt me. And he said, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And you're saying, yeah, she's heard that news and she believed in those promises and she knew what was going on now. She's like, wow, this is really amazing. Knowing these promises brought her hope. And then he said, now the bad news, you got to go back to Abram. The place she hated was God's place for her protection and growth. And that's where she had to go back. Maybe the place you hate is actually a place God has you for a reason. And maybe you should ask him why you should be there. Hagar believed God and put her faith in him. She called him El Roy, 
God who sees me. This had to be an incredibly emotional moment for her. She's finally being seen. And think about it. A lifetime of being unseen. And the first time you felt seen is by Jesus. I mean, can you imagine that? So she's got to be just like, oh, my goodness. So she trusted in him for her future. She believed in him. So now we know why he came to her. (laughs) It's so cool, isn't it? She knew she was going to trust in him. Her trust in Jesus gave Hagar the courage to go back to Abram. She had to humble herself before Sarah. And Abram clearly believed her story, didn't he? How do we know he believed her story? Some very clear ways. Number one, he wrote it down in this book. If he doesn't write it down, she didn't write it down. So how did it get here? Because he wrote it down and passed it along to Moses who recorded it. So that's how we know. And what else did he record? The name that he gave his son. What name did he give him? The one she told him to give him. You didn't name your son the name your wife told you to give. The husband picked the name. The father picked the name, not the woman. He chose the name for his son that his, this slave girl told him to give. Why? Because he knew it came from God. He believed her. He believed in her. He kept the name for God and the name of the well, and it was all placed in the Torah. Hagar was protected, respected, and lived with her husband and son for 14 years. God showed up in this story and dramatically changed in a way no one would have ever predicted. Where do you need God to show up with an unimaginable solution for you? Despite his total lack of faith and poor leadership, God brought Abram's son back to him. Guys, you have no idea how emotional this had to be. He got to live with Ishmael for 14 years as his only son. This is very emotional. God healed the broken relationships, and God kept Abram in a place of honor among the men of his tribes and righteous standing with him. God often uses broken men who struggle with their faith and their bad decisions. So how often do you lack faith or trust in God And when that happens, wonder if you're saved. How often does that happen? Man, that's happened to me so many times where my faith broke down and I was like, am I saved? What's wrong with me? And God says, hey, did you go read that story in Genesis 16? I put that there so when that happens, you'll actually believe there's a guy just like you. And you know who he is? The father of your faith and the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith. He's the father of all those faiths. And he failed miserably too. Stop feeling that way. I got your back. Now, despite her broken life and arrogant spirit, God redeemed Hagar. She found a saving faith in him. She saw her son born and living with his dad. She was put back into a wealthy home filled with security and comfort. And since this story was recorded, Hagar has been a respected name with every Jew, Muslim, and Christian throughout all of history. That's amazing. That is not what you would have expected at the end of this story. Let me close with this thought, you guys. My fears of not being seen started when my dad abandoned our family. And for many of you guys who've been abandoned by a father, you know what I'm talking about. You start to have this fear, and it's hard to explain. I've worked my whole life trying to be seen as somebody with value. When a boy loses his dad, he feels invisible in this world. It's hard to read Genesis 16 and wonder how righteous I have really been. My deep need to be seen as valuable has driven me beyond what you could imagine to be a Christian, a Bible teacher, a good husband, a good father, 
a CEO, a wealthy man, a leader, a healthy man, a generous man, and a guy who's respected. I struggle with this at times, wondering, was that motivation to be seen really? What God used to shape my life and my character, does that really count? How could that count? And my takeaway is this. God used my broken family and my emotional struggles to glorify him and him alone. Yet I also believe this, and this is the part I'm hoping you'll hear. God gave us marriage and families so we could grow up in a safe place where we learn to love in a healthy way. I believe he has set before us a path that's a better way. We don't have to go through the failed family path. We don't always have to learn from failure. We can learn from the wisdom of men who came before us. And here's wisdom I know to be true. Men who truly believe in building a strong, God-designed marriage are the men who have the greatest chance of a healthy self-awareness, honest communication, and the ability to regulate their own fears. And these men work well with their wives to control their fear and anxieties and help their families manage those in a healthy way. Children in those homes spend far less time worrying about being seen by the world. Why? Because they have a healthy, sober assessment of themselves that's centered on the identity that God provided and they learn from their mother and father. Peter Scazzaro, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, highly recommended for some of your reading. Peter Scazzaro, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, said this. It's a fabulous book, easy to read. Ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. The heart of a man must listen to its fears and its need to be seen so that the man can be ushered into the presence of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, and we honor you with our lives, Lord. We are fearful men, and we do want to be seen, Lord. Please help us grow together as men to love each other, trust each other, and build good, strong marriages where communication is vibrant, and we learn to manage our emotions well, Lord. We need that. We need you, Lord. Please help us, and help us as Christian men to now raise marriage to a higher standard, to a higher place, and make it something that's honored and glorified in our lives, and that we give great praise and recognition to, Father. Lord, I ask you to help us carry that mantle well, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.